stripping along with the breeze. Oh, we're on the air. Well, hello there, gang. Hello there, fellow victims. Good evening to all of you solitary travelers along the yellow brick road of the 20th century. I presume that your life is as fragmented as everybody else's. Are you still searching for your identity? Well, you've come to the right spot, friends. Tonight, we may very well give you the clue to just who you are, what you are, and even more interesting, <laughs> why you are. So bring it up there, baby. Hey, this is a very good microphone. This is a very good microphone. This is John Gambling's mic. All the rest of them, the staff, you know, we have to use those single-button mics for carbon hiss and all that. Bring it up. You should hear the lyrics to this thing. Well, they're great, I'll tell you. They're in Viennese. Oh, uh, by way of a disclaimer, uh, for those of you who are weak-kneed and lily-livered, I would suggest you better not listen tonight. This is going to be a rather sickening show tonight. Well, I thought I'd warn you. What do you want, huh? All right, thank you very much, Skip. That was very well done. Hi, George. You can tell when you've got a good man at the controls. The music comes through much better and louder. He's got a better sense of pitch, too. Than math. That's very good, Skimp. Oh, oh uh, yes, that's right. We're on the air now, and uh, tonight we're going to do some very special things. And one of the things that I've been planning to do for a long time is to salute, to, excuse me, to salute America in the 20th century. And uh, would you please bring me on some uh, big American-type music in there, Matt? Uh, hit it, hit it there, big. And tonight, this very important radio station once again salutes America in the mid-20th century. An America on the go. An America marching ever upward, ever onward. And an American world that is slowly slipping sideways and coming unstuck somewhere along the line. It has been said that this is the age of go-go. This is the age of the dynamic, ever-moving, mobile man. There are others who say that the 20th century eventually will go down in history as the age of total showbiz. And daddy, there ain't no country that leads any other country in the world in showbiz than the, the good old U.S. of A. Oh, do I know some lyrics to this one? Smokes. 
You never heard such kazoo blowing in your life. Fantastic. Oh, yes, uh, why are we saluting tonight in the, the world of showbiz, Uber Alice? As uh, we know, here, here, here's the reason here, actually, a little note that came out in um, the Daily Home News from New, Br- New Brunswick, New Jersey. It, uh, it says here, uh, would you please bring me a little of that American music quietly behind me? Just play it softly behind me. That's it. So that we can set the tone. So that we can set that soft, easy, that uh, atmosphere of uh, a dynamic nation on the move. We have a note here that says, Television's FBI man told real-life law enforcement officers yesterday the doctrine of civil disobedience is supported by bigots, fanatics, and extremists. Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., who plays the infallible Inspector Lou Erskine of the ABC television networks, the FBI series, told the 78th graduating class of the FBI National Academy, quote, The average citizen has had his fill of demagogues grown too arrogant and pressure groups too demanding. And as the 78th graduating class of the FBI knew, they were listening to a really fine FBI man, actor Ephraim Zimbalist. Only in America would a guy who plays an FBI man address... The graduated group of FBI men. Bring it up there. This will be known as the age when fantasy and showbiz began to slowly take over from reality. I wonder how many FBI men are going to now pattern themselves after Ephraim Zimbalist. You know, the age-old question, does art imitate life, or does life imitate art? Well, only MCA knows. Hooray for William Morris! Hooray for good old MCA! Upwards and onwards we go with nationally famous artists, and the U.S. they will win all the time. Then it's not play for old William Morris. MCA, we will always be on your side. Hooray, hooray for old show business. Variety billboard, we will read you all the way. All right, that's enough there. That's enough there. Gee whiz. Wait till they have... Wouldn't it be great? You know, I just see somebody... One, one day somebody in William Morris is going to read a copy of the Declaration of Independence and realize it's like a Sacco TV series starring Lucille Ball, Jackie Cooper, and Tab Hunter. Hooray for William Morris all the way. Ephraim Zimbalist. Well, you know, I, I happen to have attended uh, sort of a surreptitiously a very wild incident of that same kind that I saw a graduating class of nurses about a year or so ago. And these nurses were addressed. It was a national convention of graduating, very important graduation of nurses. You know, they were all wearing their little hats and pins and everything. And they were real nurses, you know. They really knew what a bedpan was. And uh, these chicks were all graduating 
And they had this girl, this actress, who played the nurse on the nurses addressing them. And, and she was telling them about the responsibility of nurses, which I thought was kind of funny. I wonder whether or not the graduating class of the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, you know, all these little actresses graduating, if they go and get a famous nurse to address them. <laughs> you Don't you bet your boots, because we are living in the time, believe me, when people really seriously believe that an actor is what he plays. We really believe that. And for that reason, uh, have you noticed that everywhere you look, actors are springing up in the political world? And, and of all kinds. I mean, I'm, I'm both on the left and on the right. I mean, actors, and I use the term actor in the performer sense. It can be anybody who's in showbiz one way or another. Oh, sure, uh, uh, millions of little old ladies are following Ronald Reagan. Because he was, you know, he he plays such nice husbands. He's such a nice husband, and and yeah. No, oh, really? Have you noticed that none of the guys who are running are guys who really got the women in any of the stories they played? Because there is something a little suspect about that Rue rakish type. You know, there's something in in, in the late Clark Gable's eye that uh, <laughs> you know that that uh, that even though he got the women and he was the hero. People are a little jealous of heroes, and women are always a little nervous around heroes. I mean, the heroic type. But somehow, the second banana, you feel a little... The second banana is always the proverbial nice guy, the best friend, they call him. As a matter of fact, this, you know, this, uh, this thing uh, persists even in, uh, in the world of the toys. How many of you have ever seen the Barbie and Ken toys? You know Barbie, the Barbie dolls? You never heard of the Barbie dolls? Well, here's Barbie, you know. She's a real sex pot, you know, type. Plastic. I mean, if you, some people go for polyethylene sex. But there's, there she is, a little plastic chick. And she's got it all, believe me. And uh, her boyfriend, Ken, although I'm a little worried about Ken. I mean, I, I've, seen Ken, I've seen Ken's type running up and down McDougal Street. Uh, there's something about Ken that I'm worried about, but that's, I keep that to myself. But nevertheless, if, the, if that's Barbie's taste, I'm not going to argue with it. I mean, you, have you seen her boyfriend? I mean, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, so I'm not going to argue with that. But she's got a girlfriend. Now, this is the important part. She's got a girlfriend, I think it's named Marge, something like that, Margie, Midge, that's it. She's got a girlfriend named Midge, who is not quite as good-looking as Barbie, but somehow you feel she's more solid. She's the kind who sits in the back seat, and Barbie's sitting in the front seat of the, her little Dodge Coronet convertible, and her hair is flying. You know, she's part of the Dodge Rebellion, you know. It's, it's a, you can tell these are real rebels. And, uh, oh, yes, I'm telling you, someday, one day, they're going to investigate that Dodge Rebellion. Find out, you know, you can't have rebellions going on like this all over. And, and uh, sure, you know, you've got to keep your eye on the, on the population. And so Barbie's up in the front seat with her hair flying back, you know, and Ken is sitting there, and he's not driving because in the, in the um, oh, they have a stingray? I see. Uh, well, you mean Ken has a stingray, but when they go out on a double date, they don't go on no stingray, honey. I've been in stingrays. It's pretty hard to have a single date to stingray. Uh, if you want to have an interesting single date, it's very difficult. However, nevertheless, uh, <laughs> that's another problem. That's why they call them sport cars, you know. It's very sporty in one of them cars. It's not easy. It's, you know, it's like tracking a jaguar in the heart of the Peruvian jungle. It can be nip and duck. But nevertheless, uh, I said tuck. 
nevertheless, uh, you get uh, involved with this Barbie and Ken and this midge business, and you, you run into this, this the, the nice guy or the nice girl myth who is the, the boyfriend or the girlfriend of the heroic type. Do you remember when, when Clark Gable was always running around, he had, always had this friend, the good, solid, kind of dumb friend. And that was always, uh, if you'll excuse the expression, somebody like Ronald Reagan. Uh, it was also uh, somebody like, uh, well, Wallace Beery was, was uh, his friend. Now, <laughs> the, yeah, now, now the, I think it's very important to, to realize today that since we are voting for politicians who used to be actors, that we are voting for them on the premise of the movie roles that they played. Now, I am not at any point uh, uh, arguing about their uh, their ability or their fitness or non-fitness to play the role that they're about to take over. But uh, I have noticed that no guys who, let's say, like Rod Steiger, could not get elected. Well, why not? You know, I mean, does, is it because he looks like a thug? Which reminds me, by the way, this is W.O.R., in uh, New York, and uh, speaking of, uh, hit the button there. To some people, quality is just a word. But for 112 years, quality has been a way of life for the brewers of Miller High Life. Every ingredient used in brewing this beer is always cautiously, carefully selected. Each step in the brewing of Miller High Life is done slowly, patiently, using many extra steps to be absolutely sure every drop is worthy of its reputation as the champagne of bottled beer. This great quality tradition has made Miller High Life world famous, and today millions more are asking for Miller High Life because of its exceptional goodness. Insist on Miller High Life yourself whenever you want the finest in beer. Find out that quality is more than a word. Quality is Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee. Gee, he sounds so sad. I wish I had some organ music to play behind him. You know? I'll never forget that. I have to tell you about the time that I did the commercials for this uh, undertaking parlor. Oh, yes. Well, don't... Now, don't everybody look away and look unhappy every Sunday when I was a mere stripling in this business. <laughs> on Sunday morning, Om would come. You wonder, one of the wildest shows I ever did. In fact, it was done as a remote, by the way. It was done as a remote from this friendly undertaking parlor on the south side of Chicago. I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm raising my right hand. You wouldn't believe it, but that's the truth. And they had, they had this Wurlitzer organ, you know. And uh, I, I would go down about, uh, oh, about six thirty in the morning. And I would arrive. Have you ever been in an undertaking parlor at quarter to seven on a Sunday morning? It is a, it is a rather sobering experience, I'll tell you, because all the guys are warming up in there, you know, for their day's work. Oh, sure. <laughs> it's a profession like everything else. Don't look like that. So I would go in there with my engineer. And I'm just a kid, you know, about 18 years old. And I would go in this place. And I've got my black suit on because it's a very official place. And their theme song, if I told you their theme song, you would... You know what the theme song was? It went da 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 da. da. They had "Smile a While" was their theme song. Believe it or not, I mean it was right out of "The Loved One" by Evelyn Waugh. Boom, boom, boom. 
Yes, friends, you are listening to the friendly, reliable funeral parlor where service is our watchword. And now, before we have our first beautiful musical selection today with our magnificent mammoth Wurlitzer organ with Grace Murphy at the console, a word of advice to you people out there on this quiet Sunday morning. Remember, friends, a friend in need is a friend indeed. Our phone number is Wurlitzer 6SJ7GT. Wurlitzer 6SJ7GT. Send for our free illustrated four-color brochure on the magnificent, beautiful, quiet, dignified service that we offer you when in need. And now, Grace at the Mammoth Console will play an old favorite and one that is requested many times by our listeners out there, Trees. And then, I'll tell you the funniest part of it all, in the middle of the program, it was, you know, they were paying a good full $8 for this show, this funeral parlor. And uh, You can understand why I have a certain sound to my voice now. I've been through hell, kids. And uh, I used to stand back at the console, and Delbert, who was the nephew of the owner of the friendly, reliable funeral parlor, would make his appearance every Sunday and sing his tenor solo. This is the kind of thing that teaches you about life, kid. I'll tell you. And he used to sing like this. Would you bring that? only God can make a tree. Ah, but only fools like me will He used to sing trees. And he used to sing it in the lobby to the funeral parlor. And all around me were the potted palms. And once in a while, one of the, one of the professional guys who would work there, a professional pallbearer, would walk past, and he's been drinking. Yeah, you know, well, it was it was always Sunday morning, and they'd been out Saturday night. You know, they were just like anybody else. And he would walk past, and he would trail old granddad behind him, and then <laughs> and then we would finish, and I would say, and now it's hymn time. Miss Murphy at our mammoth Wurlitzer console plays an old old favorite. No, no, no. And then I would sneak in over that and I would say, friends, as Miss Murphy entertains us at the Mammoth Wurlitzer console, just remember that number. It's 6SJ7GT. 6SJ7GT. Da 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 da. Stay tuned for the news, which follows in just a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, a statement to the American people by Lorenzo Tramaglino on behalf of Cinzano. 
For generations, we've worked very hard to make Cinzano a very good vermouth. To make our Cinzano Italian sweet vermouth, our workers have spent their very lives picking grapes and herbs. They worked their hearts out. Just so, Cinzano's sweet vermouth would add something to a drink. And we use French grapes to make Cinzano dry vermouth. Because French grapes are very dry. As a result of this, our dry vermouth isn't just dry, it's dry, dry. And it makes dry, dry drinks. And after all this time and trouble, what do you Americans know about Cinzano? That we make ashtrays. Americans, that is not nice. Imported by Shefflin and Company, New York. <laughs> hey, have you ever tried to make your own Christmas cards? Really? I mean, really good Christmas cards. I don't mean cutting out, you know, cutting out a little uh, Christmas tree or a little duck and pasting it on paper and saying, Merry Christmas, Charlie. I made it myself. <laughs> really great Christmas cards. Well, a listener uh, who I've known for some time has just created a fantastic kit to make Christmas cards that look almost like silk screen on vellum paper, and they are beautiful. And, I mean, you can draw anything. You can create any kind of a design. And it's easy to do, and they really look like beautiful Christmas cards. That means you can create any kind of a design. I mean, anything. You know what I mean, crowd? Uh, these are beautiful Christmas cards, and, uh, and it's a lot of fun to do, by the way. Now, this is available. It's called Create a Card. It's available at Bloomingdale's, Stearns, Gimbel's, Macy's, Bamberger's, Hans, and Tandy Craft Stores. And George is going to be demonstrating it this Friday between 12.30 and 5 at the, let's see, I've got it here, at Bamberger's in Eatontown in the art supplies department. And by the way, this is an art supply. This is not a little cheapy kit, and he will not be giving you a pitch or anything like that. This is going to be done like an art seminar. It's going to be at Bamberger's, Eatontown, New Jersey, 12 to 5, 5.30. That's Create a Card. Yeah, let's see. Uh, we have a note here. It says, do you know that if you average a pack of cigarettes a day, your lungs can inhale up to one-half pound of hot tar a year? And, friends, if you are like a lot of friends of mine, you collect tar for a hobby, you'll want to know about Tar Guard. And, sir, it removes all those hot tars found in the smoke of every cigarette and by the way, whether they have filters or not, this tar comes pouring in, and you hook a, a tar guard on the other end of that cigarette, and you take a good deep drag, and they say that by the end of the year, you will have enough tar to pave the average small driveway. And that's a fantastic saving. And enjoy good taste and satisfaction of your favorite brand without having hot tars enter your mouth and go squirting out your ears. They are collected in Tar Guard for the Tar Away Holder. That's Tar Guard. Let's see, Targard, Venturi, Principal. You get a package of seven for 79 cents. Enjoy the flavor and satisfaction without dangerous tires. You can get it at retail counters and specialty shops everywhere. Save your old tire instead of breathing it in and wasting it all. All right, let's see. Da, 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 tia, ta, ta, la, ta. Oh, excuse me. Da, ta, oh, uh. oh, yes, that, uh, oh, that reminds me. Don't forget now, this Saturday at 2 o'clock, and uh, this is in, in response to about, uh, oh, 48,000 letters from kids who have felt a little cheated that we have not had a, an autographing party for our book for kids only. 
because, you know, you have them in Macy's and places like that where kids can't go at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And we have also gotten a lot of letters from kids who feel that because they can't really get into the limelight at night when we're doing our show, they would like to also see the limelight. We are going to kill two birds with one stone. No grown-up types will be allowed, absolutely, in this little soiree. <laughs> That's a fact. We are, going, and we are going to have a big autographing party for any kid who either has bought my book or wants to pick up one down there at that time. They will be there. We'll have a bunch of books down there. We're going to have an autographing party in the middle of the afternoon, Saturday, at the limelight. We're going to have, you know, cider and the whole bit, and I'll get up on the chairs there and, and uh, tell some great stories, and we'll have fist fights. And, it, just for kids. No, really. And, and it's going to be at, at the limelight at 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon. 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon. And if your old man wants to bring you down there, okay, fine. But we won't let him in. He'll have to wait around outside and pick his teeth and go across the street. And we're going to have our own little thing. That's 2 o'clock Saturday. And I am really looking forward to this. At the limelight from 2 till 3 o'clock. And now if you don't know where the limelight is, it's on 7th Avenue South. In other words, if you come into New York and uh, you want to get to the limelight, you just go straight down 7th Avenue. You can take the subway right there and get off at the Sheridan Square exit. And there you are. You just come up out of underground, and there it is, right on 7th Avenue. And you'll see it right on Sheridan. It's very easy to find. It's right on Sheridan Square, and it's in the middle of the afternoon. The kids will be safe, Ma. It's going to be all right. There's not going to be any sneakiness or anything like that. And we're going to have a great time, I think. You know, that this has never been done as far as I know. And I, I've been pestering Doubleday to do it for about three months now, and they finally have consented. And it's going to be Saturday. That's this coming Saturday. This Saturday. Remember now. This Saturday at 2 o'clock at the Limelight. 7th Avenue South. That's 91 7th Avenue South, right in the heart of Sheridan Square. Got it? Is that okay now? You're cool. And, and one more thing. We have a commercial here to do, and uh, it's about uh, the Rover 2000 TC. And, you know, I got a, I got a fascinating letter from somebody uh, who wrote to me from Honolulu, a listener, an ex-listener. They don't hear me out in Honolulu. But uh, he said that he had heard me talk about the Rover for, you know, a year or so, and he never thought much about it. And then he went out to Honolulu, and one day, he, by just chance, going down the main drag in Honolulu, saw this fantastic car, went over and looked at it, and suddenly discovered he was looking at a rover. And he said all that time, all this year, it had never really gelled in his mind what a rover was. He said that he bought one and has been ecstatic for the last three months. And he says, for crying out loud, he said, for five years I was driving these tin cans all around New York City. And I could have picked up, he says, I could have picked up one cheaper in the States. And now he's really kicking himself. This is a great car, and our talk about it is not advertising PAP. Uh, this is the Rover 2000 TC, a fine piece of automotive machinery. And if you'd like to see pictures of it, send your name and address to Rover here at WOR in care of me. I'm Lon Chaney. That's Rover, W-O-R, and we'll see to it that you get it, okay? Now, uh, if we can get back to our little world here. You know, speaking of, of, of show business, strange thing. Uh, you don't mind if I pursue this can bit. Uh, <laughs> would you give me a little, uh, give me a little of that, uh, uh, how about some of that, a little of that piano music in there. We'll set the tone here. 
Give me a little. The, the, yeah, the next record. That's the other one. That's it. That's it. This is a showbiz record. I'm going to tell you a secret thing. You want to know why I play this? You, you really want to know why I play this song? Have you ever wondered why I picked this old turkey, this nothing piece of tripe? I better not tell you why I picked it. No, no, there's some things you've got to keep to yourself. This has a very secret meaning to me. All right, you really want to know? I'll tell you. My mother, and this has nothing to do with any Oedipus thing, anything like that. My mother has a peculiar talent, and it bugged me. It bugged me all the time when I was a kid. It bugged my kid brother, and as far as I know, it still bugs my kid brother, and it still bugs me. My mother was the greatest whistler I ever knew. She could whistle, I mean, she could whistle her skull out. And, and I never really could whistle. I always had a lot. Did, could you ever whistle, Skip? You mean, are you the kind that can do with the, with the thing, with the two fingers? I'm talking about the kind of whistle that breaks drinking glasses four miles away. Well, my mother could stick her two fingers into her mouth, and she could produce a shriek. I mean, the, the, the kind of ear-piercing, fantastic, air-cutting, skull-splitting shriek that you could hear for 17 miles. And it was always embarrassing. You know, I'd be at the ballpark, and I'd be playing ball. I'd be about seven miles away, and all of a sudden I'd hear this... And 85 kids say, Hey, you're old ladies whistling. You know, and I couldn't whistle to save my gut. And, and, and the reason I play this once in a while... My mother whistled Ragtime Cowboy Joe. <laughs> she still does, you know. She would hang over the sink and, and, and produce a fantastic feeding of inferiority into all, everybody, the rest of the family, Bruner, Schwartz, Flick, everybody. She would hang over the sink and she would whistle 47 varieties and variations on Ragtime Cowboy Joe. Now, that's it. That's the story. End of story. Does it disappoint you? And... Uh, oh, and she could, she just quiet, you know, she's got the Brillo pad going, and she's whistling away, and she'd be whistling away at, at, at perfect pitch, perfect pitch. I hear her back there, you know. What are you going to do when you got an old lady that can do that? <laughs> well, you know, getting back to the... I, I, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm getting hung up on this Ken and uh, the actor bit. 
I've thought of it a little bit further than that. It isn't just actors that get elected. You know, you're going to read a lot of essays on this. I think in the next few years, eventually, uh, people are going to recognize this as a genuine time of revolution. I mean, in, in attitudes, in, uh, I suppose you might say, the way people perceive reality, that more and more people today really believe that love is something that happens in the movies, that they actually go to the movies to get an experience of love or excitement or involvement. Uh, people are getting it from all kinds of mechanical devices. I'll never forget uh, a few years ago, there used to be jokes about high-five, for example, Skip. You're a high-five fan. Uh, about people who would be disappointed when they became, you know, they were really hi-fi nuts and they they got the tweeters going and they've got the woofers and they've got the crossover circuits and the whole thing is just roaring out through their house. And then they one day decide to go to a real concert and they feel cheated. Now, the question here is a good question. Uh, is the recording of a symphony, is it, uh, is it just a recording or has it supplanted the real performance? Now, to many people today, they don't even question that anymore. They will tell you that the recording is far superior to the real performance. Which means, then, have we... I don't know quite how to phrase this. Uh, have we, then, begun to accept the mechanical creation as superior and better to the actual existence of the thing which it is recreating. It's no wonder then that a person who is deeply, who is that deeply involved, that he will tell you that I'd rather hear a violin on a record than I'll hear a violin in reality. Then the next step, of course, is to accept the same premise in other areas, which means then that a guy sitting in the front seat of a car with a girl and they're going along, and they're talking back and forth. They're having a usual human relationship. And uh, she's a human being, flesh and blood. She's got her likes and dislikes. He's got his. And one thing leads to the next, and it turns out that uh, their experience with one another is, uh, you know, hmm. And so they, the guy goes along, and he has another experience with somebody else. And the girl has another experience with somebody else. Well, eventually, they reached the point the way hi-fi fans have reached long ago, where their idea of love and involvement can be found in the second reel of a Swedish movie, because what they find in the front seat of their car does not come up to that. <laughs> the lighting is never as good. The music is not as good. The editing is not as good in your real life. Uh, all the rest of it, all the rest of it you see, that can be done, but the mechanical contrivance of a movie is not found in real life. So naturally, they finally supplant real life with this recorded celluloid thing. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to be facetious here. I think we're going into other areas, too, uh, where unconsciously we somehow believe because we are the product of uh, maybe 35 or 40 or 50 years. I say that this revolution began about the time of World War I that now we are finally reaping the eventual results of it in 1966, that we vaguely, way down deep inside of us, without even knowing we do, it's almost now uh, an ingrained reaction to images. 
we really believe that a handsome man is a better man. His morality is better and greater than a man who is not. Because handsome men are always heroes in the movies. Handsome men are always heroes in the movies, and uh, evil men are always readily identifiable by their looks. Remember that. I mean by their looks. Almost invariably, you can tell when you see a movie who's going to be the good guy and who's going to be the bad guy. Well, 40 or 50 years of this ingrained into a population will finally result in people who have made that transition from reality to fantasy. And so, have you noticed how, much, how almost all of our politicians in the last 10 years have been good-looking men? I, the minute I saw Abe Beam and John Lindsay on a TV, I knew who was going to win instantly. It didn't make any difference whether Lindsay came out and went, you know? It wouldn't have made any difference. He was in. Now, I'm not putting Lindsay down, but he was in. <laughs> as simple as that. Uh, I think people unconsciously feel a great disappointment with the way with the way Lyndon Johnson looks. Johnson, oh, you know what Johnson? You know, I, you know why I think Johnson is is dying secretly. I mean, with uh, by dying, I mean people don't buy him the way they bought, say, uh, John Kennedy. It's not so simple as simply to say that Kennedy was more more handsome. But the kind of guy that Linz, if you stand back and look at Johnson, you know who he looks like? Slim Somerville. He does. He looks like the kind of guy that, in a way, played comic relief. He didn't. He isn't even the guy that played bad guys. Now, a bad guy would be, say, somebody like Jack Palance. Uh, a good guy would be somebody like George Murphy, or uh, Ronald Reagan, or Lindsey, or Kennedy. But what would what would if you were casting a movie, what would Johnson play? He wouldn't play the bad guy. Don't don't immediately jump up and say that. If you do, you're just being uh, you know you're just being uh, too quick with your answer. He would play the, the funny guy that comes in in the third reel with the big cowboy hat on when John Wayne walks in. And by the way, he would not play the Gabby Hayes character either. That's something else. That's the old codger who really is, in a sense, the Greek chorus to the cowboy hero. He'd play the funny guy who runs the livery stable. And he comes in, he says, well... I see you guys just coming into town there, and I said to Ma, I said, Ma, you better get some of them blueberry muffins on because, man, these guys look like they're hungry. And you mean to tell me you was going out after them rustlers? Oh, man, I just tell you, all I got to say is you let me know when them rustlers are coming to town because I'm going to say, Feats, Feats, you better get going because I'm going for the hills. And that's the guy, really, in a way, that, that uh, Johnson, and you'd never elect him. Now, you may elect a bad guy. You, yeah, there's a certain attraction to evil. People are fascinated by the evil man, the Cesar Romero, the Jack Palance. You're fascinated by evil. You are. You're also fascinated by good guys. You know, the hero. This is Kennedy. But the guy that plays the, the comic relief, for example, in the Shakespearean plays, nobody ever makes himself a big star by playing snout. I've never heard anybody go, you know, I've never heard anybody get to be big who played Tinker or who played uh, uh, the donkey. Uh, what's the donkey again? I forgot. Bottom, bottom. Well, 
these, these are the guys that just come in and relieve the pressure. So I, I think, now I'm not trying to be uh, uh, facetious, I think that you're going to see, and one more thing too, the Jack Oakies, now it isn't that people just elect actors, they elect certain kind of actors, and they relate to certain kind of actors. Now, for example, Jack Oakey, no, you wouldn't elect Jack Oakey. Well, he's an actor. Well, because he always played the kind of dumb guy with the hat pushed back. So, <laughs> you know, who's going to elect him? He may have a Ph.D. in who knows what. But uh, you, just, you just wouldn't elect this guy because uh, he looks like the kind of guy that says, Hey, fellas, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's put on a show. Look, Mickey, you get, you get a band, and I'll do the tap dance. Yeah, never I can elect this guy. Now, the reason George, I think, that uh, George Murphy makes, George Murphy played the solid, reliable friend to the hero. And in a way, this guy appeals to everybody. He's solid. He's reliable. I don't think we're going to elect many true hero types, because the hero always has a little look of the maverick in his eye. We'll elect his good best friend, uh, like uh, Ronald Reagan is a good best friend type who just misses the girl. Jeffrey Lynn, had he gone into politics, could have made that. You know, he could have gone all the way. Now, Gig Young, for example, you know, Gig Young is a, he's the type. Uh, it, there are there are several of that type around yet. Now, had had he decided to go all the way, now maybe John, the late Jack Carson might have made it. Yeah, you know, he's the good, solid, reliable friend. Uh, he was usually, Jack Carson, if I remember correctly, was usually, uh, he was usually Spencer Tracy's best friend. Now, Spencer Tracy, he could have gotten elected. Had Tracy decided to run for anything, I think Tracy could have gone all the way. Because, you see, he didn't really play heroes. He was always the best friend to Clark Gable, who played the hero, you see. Spencer Tracy played leading men. Now, that's something else again. The lead, don't confuse the leading man term with the hero. Any good actor will tell you there's a, a world of difference between leading man and heroic type. And Spencer Tracy is an example of the leading man. A hero is an example. Uh, uh, Robert Taylor was a hero. And so these are two different types, you see. Oh, uh, how, uh, how about, what's, what's a midge's boyfriend? Oh, buddy. <laughs> they always have some cute little name like that. It looks like you're saying Blam. Does it say Blam is his name? I'm sorry, honey. Blam, okay. Maybe she'll get it written out before we go off the air. You say his name is Stanislaus? I won't buy it. Oh, Alan. Oh, well, that's a good best friend name. See, Ken is a heroic name. Alan is a best friend. You know, like Alan Mowbray, Alan Jones... You know, those guys that are always second bananas, but they go all the way in the end, you know? People really love the second banana.